Dear Lord, we thank you so much for bringing us here today. Um, I have to be honest and say that this story has really thrown me for a loop. And it has been hard to really wade through and to really see what you want us to learn, to see what is right. And sometimes you just don't answer all of our questions because you're God. And we are supposed to love you. We are supposed to trust you. We know that you are sovereign over all things. So there is a reason for this story. I pray that your Holy Spirit would guide me and lead me. I pray that if I say anything that is incorrect, that these women would be gentle with me and that we could talk about it and that we could all learn and grow together. We thank you that your Holy Spirit empowers us when we are weak. Pray that your spirit would be here now. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. All right, sorry, y'all, come on in. Uh, we are going to go ahead and jump in to this bizarre story, right? Um, I'm very introspective and black and white and a math major, and I like to know clearly what is right and wrong. So you can see how much I struggled with this. <laughs> Nothing as clear as it. All right, so to try to make a little understanding about the story, I think we have to step back. We can't just read it, detail it to death. We have to step back and look where we are, right? So where have we come? Joshua started as our leader. He led us into the promised land. We fought a lot of people. God gave them victory over all their enemies, right? Then we spent a ton of time dividing up this land into 12 tribes of Israel. We finished last week with the Levites portion, and I think it is important to start with that last verse in chapter 21. This is what we are told. Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. God is faithful. So I feel like with that verse, there should be a trumpet, right? dun dun dun, dun. It's over. We did it. We did it. Joshua's final three chapters. This is, he's going to tell us something important, right? We read this story and we are like, what? This is the, this is the final thing he is giving us, this story, right? What? I had to really read this story about 5,000 times before I could really start understanding that the two things I want to land on today is obedience and unity. I think God is showing us that is extremely important to him. We know that to be true, so that's what we're going to talk about. So in our text today, Joshua begins by summoning the two and a half tribes. Remember, there's 12 tribes of Israel. Sue told us all about these two and a half tribes that saw this beautiful land east of the Jordan. It was pretty to their eyes. They said, we want that instead of the promised land. And Moses said, okay, you can have it. So today... Joshua is just starting out by calling those two and a half tribes. So what had happened is back in Joshua 1, um, Moses had commanded the men from the two and a half tribes, you have to go into the promised land and fight with your brothers. You have to help them conquer all of their enemies, wipe out the promised land so it's theirs. And when I give you rest, you can go back home to your wives and children. So that is what they have done. Joshua calls those two and a half tribes, those men, and this is what he says. In verse 2, 
You have kept all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you and have obeyed my voice and all that I have commanded you. You have not forsaken your brothers these many days down to this day, but have been careful to keep the charge of the Lord your God. So what do we see? They obeyed. They obeyed. And we are shocked, right? All the Israelites do is disobey. Yet Joshua is saying, you did it. Well done. Now, why did I ask you all those really weird questions about obedience? I did not do it to exasperate you. I did not do it to be mean to you. I did it because our view of obedience is important. It shows us how we view God. How does it do that? Well, if we believe the Bible, what does the Bible tell us about ourselves? We're sinners. Every single thing we do is tainted with sin. How then can we obey? Can we even obey? Is it a lost cause? Should we even try? Yet, we are told we can obey through the power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit strengthens us and empowers us to do things that we are unable to do without him. I want you to wrestle with this. I want you to wrestle with where you stand on obedience. For some of us, obedience is a dead weight. It devastates us. We live under the weight of guilt and shame for all of the things we fail to do. Obedience is an oppressing word. For some of us, another weight is we know there's some kind of debt we owe, right? So we put it on ourselves to pay that debt. We work, we work, we work. Everything we can do to pay that debt. We need to obey. We need to obey. That's our duty. So let me ask you this. Les Newsome, my hero, I remember him telling this story. I'll never forget it. Let's pretend you have a husband or a boyfriend. He walks in the door with a beautiful bouquet of flowers, but he chunks them on the kitchen counter and says, there you go. I love you. That's what I'm supposed to do. What? That's junk. Like, who wants that? Is that love? It totally negates the purpose. Jesus says, if you love me, you obey my commands. Christ's love should be the thing that spurs us to obey. Not guilt, not works righteousness, not obligation, not a debt that we owe. And this is important. God is not looking at you shaking his head, crossing his arms, saying, there she goes again. I knew she couldn't do it. She's a sinner. What is she doing? He does not, look at that like, does not look at us like that. He tells us to obey because he loves us. Let's make sure we understand that word love. I'm not telling you to obey when you feel like it. Love is a choice. Christ's love for us should change the way we view obedience. It should spur us on to obey. All right, so in verse 5, Joshua now warns these men, be very careful to observe the commandment and the law that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you to love the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to keep his commandments, to cling to him, to serve him. This is important because we as believers have commands like this all in the New Testament. We are told to do all of these things. So when you read these commands... How do you feel? Are you devastated? 
Are you like, is he just trying to exasperate me? He knows I can't do that. Why would he do that to me? Or are you encouraged that God loves you so much? He is setting up safeguards for you to live in this beautiful place that only you can live in if you obey. Obedience is not an oppressing word. If you came to the Ted Tripp conference, he talked all about how obedience is the safest place we can live. I remember thinking when I was young, obedience, it's just this annoying, irritating, just this thing that like ruins all my fun, right? That's not obedience. How do we reconcile sin and obedience? This is what the New City Catechism says. Since no one can keep the law, what is its purpose? That we may know the holy nature of God, the sinful nature of our hearts, and thus our need for a Savior. We need to see our need for Jesus, and he does that through the law, through obedience, through our sin. It should point us to Jesus, not leave us in guilt and shame and isolation. And one parting comment, when we strive to obey Let's remember to do what God commands of us. As women, we try to be all things to all people. The world is telling us to be one million things that we could never be. Make sure you're focusing on the things that God tells you to do. I wish we could keep talking about obedience forever, but we got to move into the bizarre story, right? So in verse 9, we see the two and a half tribes are on the move, right? These men are headed home to go home to their wives and children. They've done what they said they would do. They're heading home, right? I think it's important for us to look at their relationship. They have just spent years, years fighting with their Israelite brothers, right? So Andy and I love war movies. That's the thing we always agree on with movies. Action, war, give me a good movie. My mind immediately went to the Lone Survivor. Do y'all remember this story? The four Navy SEALs go into Afghanistan. They're looking for this Taliban leader who has killed all kinds of Americans, anybody who has helped with Americans. As they're going through these treacherous mountains of Afghanistan, you knew one thing for sure. They would give their life for the man standing next to them. I think something happens when you fight, when you're in a war together. There is a unity that is created. And we all want to be a part of something like that, don't we? I can't say for sure how they felt, but I think there was a really deep sense of unity. So these two and a half tribes get to the Jordan River, right? And what do they do? They stop and they build an altar, an altar of imposing size. Now, if you're like me, I read this the first 500 times and was like, "Woo, an altar, that's a no-no, right? You don't go rogue, build altars, I fully expected to see God's wrath on display very, very shortly. I think the Israelites, the other nine and a half tribes in the promised land, thought the exact same thing. In verse 11 and 12, we told that they met at Shiloh to make war. This is where I went downhill. <laughs> I kept trying to figure out who's right, who's wrong, who's doing that, what's going on here. I don't know that we're really told that. But I think we can learn from the wisdom that was exercised and how they dealt with one another. Remember those war days we just talked about? Loyalty, deep sense of unity between the brothers. They were on the same team. There was no reason for them to just all of a sudden start a war. 
They were God's chosen people. Let's, for example, call them the church. In your cross-references, I took you to Deuteronomy 12. It was very clear why the Israelites were so upset. God commanded there be one chosen place of worship. They were not to mimic the pagans who built altars on every mountain, every hill, under every green tree. The Israelites had a right to be outraged when they thought their brothers were setting up a forbidden place of worship. But look at the wisdom they used. Instead of jumping into this raging war, what do they do? They get Phineas the priest, and they get ten chiefs, one representative from each tribe, to go to the two and a half tribes and investigate. Hmm, that kind of sounds like having a pastor and some elders. These representatives say in verse 16, Thus says the whole congregation of the Lord, What is this breach of faith you have committed against the God of Israel in turning away this day from following the Lord by building yourselves an altar this day in rebellion against God? Now, I would say that's a pretty good reason to go to a brother, right? If they are living in rebellion to God, that is a very good reason to go to a brother. But if that's not enough for us, they give us two examples. They give us examples of when Israelites have sinned, how the sin affects the whole congregation of Israel. The sin of Peor happened back in Numbers 25. Israelite men were taking Moabite women. They had a huge orgy. They set up all these idols. They started worshiping Baal and all of these foreign gods. God was outraged. 24,000 people were killed as a consequence of that sin. And if that's not enough, Phineas, the same Phineas in our story today, who is one of the men going, the priest, he went into a tent of an Israelite man and a Moabite woman in their sin and speared them to death. That was how, how outrageous their sin was. If that story is not enough, we move right into Achan. Remember Achan back in Joshua 7? There were all of these devoted things they were supposed to destroy, and Achan just couldn't help himself, could he? He took some of the devoted things, hid them, and all kinds of sin came on Israel. Achan and his family were killed because of their sin. So we see that Israelites had very good reason to go to their brothers and question what they were doing. So what does this passage have to do with unity, or the church for that matter? At the beginning of this chapter, Joshua warns the people, be very careful to obey God. Obedience to God shows our great love for him. Our great love for him creates a community of believers and promotes unity among his people. When we all stand on the same thing that bonds us together, that Christ is Lord, his word is truth, that is the thing that bonds us together and create, creates a beautiful community with so much unity in Christ. So when something comes into our camp that is in opposition to the word, we should be outraged. If a fellow believer is living in rebellion to God's word, we should go to them. And I wish we had time to go through all the scripture that tells us how to go to a brother in sin. We also have a lot of church leaders around here who can help us in how to do this. But the goal of going to someone in sin is always for repentance and restoration and to bring them back into the community and this unity we share that Christ is Lord. This is what Matthew Henry says about their unity. 
They had a zeal for God, tempered, guided, and governed by the meekness of wisdom. How beautiful would it be if we approached people like that around the church? In verse 22, we see the two and a half tribes reveal who their allegiance is to. They proclaim, the mighty one, God, the Lord, the mighty one, God, the Lord, he knows, and let Israel know too. And basically, they go on to say, if we are in rebellion to God, then strike us down. They reveal this is not an altar of worship and sacrifice, but of witness. They were afraid that the next generation would forget that they too were a part of Israel. They were afraid that this huge Jordan River was going to be the barrier that would keep them away from this unity. In verse 34, they proclaim, it is a witness between us that the Lord is God. So the thing that unites them is that they all believe the Lord is God. Now let's get personal. Do you ever think much about unity in the church? Do you ever think much about the community of believers? And most importantly, does God say anything about this? Before the earth was ever created, there was perfect unity. Three persons, one essence. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. They've always lived in perfect community and unity with one another. So I think that's the first thing that we see about God's character that shows us the importance of community. Here are a few other scriptures. 1 Corinthians 1.10, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and same judgment. Colossians 3.12, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgive each other as the Lord has forgiven you. Above all, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to indeed what you are called one body. There's a million other scriptures that show us the importance of community. So God made us to live in community with one another. And right now we are being overrun with studies that tell us today we live in a time that is more connected than we've ever been but we're also more lonely than we've ever been. Depression, anxiety, suicide, drug use, pornography, all of these things are at an all-time high, and I would like to suggest that they breed when people live in isolation and loneliness. So I hope that you can see living in a community of believers is something, not that we just we make up around here that sounds good, It is something that God commands us to be a part of. It is important to get plugged in to a community of believers. Don't be content to always cling to those that you know. Branch out. And I'm telling you, there is a wealth of encouragement and wisdom from the women you see in this church. But I also want to remind you, there are a lot of women in this church who are struggling, who are limping, with the trials that have come their way, and they need your encouragement. If you hear someone being critical and negative about the very institution that Jesus gave his life for, defend the unity of the church. If you see something around here that is not proclaiming God is Lord, go to that person, talk to that person. 
There are so many ways we can love the church, defend the church, serve the church, and extend the church to others. It is very important work. And I want to end by totally copying something that Glenn Nesbitt did in that sermon that you sent out. As I stand in this room, I see so many women doing this, and I want to encourage you. So to those of you who serve tirelessly on MITs, to those who are mentoring younger women, women, to those who come to all of these meetings to plan the events, to invite people in, to those of you who get her early um, and stay late to clean up, to decorate, to those who make coffee, to those who wipe all the germs off the toys in the nursery, to those who give people a ride to church, to those of you who extend a hug to the crushed in spirit, to the struggling mama and the pain-ridden woman who have to struggle to get out of the bed in the morning. We are encouraged every time we see you walk in the door. The last one is I really want to thank you incredible, amazing Graceland teachers. You discipline my sons for the hundredth time, and when I pick them up, you tell me that you love them, you're thankful for them, and you hug me when I need it the most. There are so many things that go on around this church in ways that people love and serve. You're extending the love of Christ to everyone you come in contact with. I'm so encouraged to keep fighting with you. I hope that you will be encouraged that you are doing what the Lord has called you to do. It is very important to him. And one day soon, he will be very pleased to look at you and say, well done, good and faithful servant. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your church. We thank you that you have set up a place for us to learn about you, for a place where the word of God is held in the highest esteem, a place where we know that truth is being told all the time, a place where we can walk in when we are struggling and we are just a mess and we are broken, that there are women here that will love us and encourage us and point us to the truth, a place where we can find true rest and true comfort. God, I pray that your spirit would encourage us. I pray that you would protect this church. I pray that you would defend this church and that you would make this church just a place that is a solid rock on you and your truth. We thank you so much for this day and this place to come to learn about you, to wrestle with the things that you have given us in this life that we don't understand, but to know and that we will proclaim that you are God. We love you and we trust you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.